welcome Megan Venable, Dr. Megan <laughs> Venable Thomas. Thank to you. Let's be clear. <laughs> How are you, daughter? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm feeling great, feeling great. It's, it's uh, the vibrancy of the next uh, few days and interviews that I have with you and some other sisters. Uh, I'm just excited that you're, uh, that you're taking the time to talk with us a little bit. Um, you know, you got this dynamite resume, but I, I want to know a little bit about who Megan is, that where you were born, where you were raised, what you do for fun, and then we can go into some of the other details in our conversation. Okay. Um, yeah, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I very much moved all over the place, which was challenging at the time, I think, but really helped me to learn how to uh, adapt, to meet people, to uh to make friends quickly despite moving around i always had track and i always had that team environment to fall back into which i think was really useful talk a little bit about your track experiences what got yeah. you back to begin with i didn't start running track until high school and when i started i just knew i found out that i had a talent um, I did well, available there. I, I went to high school in Galveston, Texas. Um, go tours, ball high school. Um, and that's really where I think my track, my love for track and also the talent that I did have was really able to be cultivated. Um, and so I went to school, to college on a track scholarship. I was the captain of the track team and track was just really, I think a place that taught me camaraderie. It taught me um, how to dig deep. It taught me courage. It taught me leadership. It taught me so many things that I'm super grateful for. Yeah, some lessons <laughs> learned from that. So what took you to West Point? Yeah, um, I think West Point, going to West Point was definitely a journey. People often think you know, there are a lot of people out there who know their whole lives that they want to go to West Point or that that's a place that they want to be. But honestly, track was my entry point to West Point. I was recruited to run track. Um, and I think when I first heard about it, I was like, okay, this seems interesting. Let's see what it's all about. Um, and it's funny because I went to like a, I went to a, um, a, they used to call them uniform shows where they would show you all the uniforms. Someone would come out and talk about um, what it's like to be there, what classes are like. Uh, and it was so funny. I went with my parents and we left and they were like, what do you think? And I was like, yeah, no. Did you see that uniform? That is not cute. That is not for me. And my mom was like, oh, because we were all in. We're like, yes, definitely. This is where you need to go. Um, and it's funny because, you know, my stepfather was in the military, so they were much more, um, they had much more understanding of what West Point was than I did. Um, and I was super resistant. Uh, I kept getting recruited. Um, and I was like, Ooh, I went for a visit and I was like, Ooh, this is a lot. Um, <laughs> and, you know, ultimately it came down to 
my mom sat me down. I was do I did my application. I did all the things I was supposed to do. Um, and I got accepted, which I didn't think I would. And I was terrified. I was like, yeah, you know, you know, my guidance counselor at school had told me it's so hard to get into. You probably won't get in. You know, that's a whole nother story about guidance counselors. Um, but uh, they, they had deterred me. Other people had deterred me. Um, and then I got accepted. And my mom said, are you really going to miss up an opportunity because you think it's going to be a challenge? Because that's not the, the, the Megan that I know. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, okay, mom, <laughs> you know, all right. Um, and I think I really had to reflect on what I wanted to get out of my college experience. I was being recruited other places. Um, but ultimately I knew that I wanted a place where I could learn how to be the best leader I could be to impact my community, right. To be able to give back to, um, to black people and people of color, to be able to be financially stable and independent. Um, and to be able to have an environment where I can feel accomplished and be proud of my experience. Um, and so, you know, West Point not only um, is free, but it, they pay you to go there. You get an incredible education and it is super unique um, and, and prepares you for leadership and life in a way that I think really no other place does. Uh, so. That's really how I ended up at West Point. And so many people were so encouraging. Um, I would meet people, black, older black people who would say to me that didn't even know me, we are so proud of you for, for taking this opportunity. And that meant a lot to me. And so I knew, I started to really see the gravity of the decision that I was making and um, to go there and to be there as a black woman. And um, at that point, I just couldn't, I couldn't say no. I said, I at least have to try and see what this is all about. What were some of the issues around racism and gender issues that you found at the point? Because they're still uh, part of the maintenance of the institution of this country. So what was some of that like for you? Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, I think it's a question I get a lot. So uh, I went to West Point and then I also worked in admissions at West Point. So I've talked to work, I worked in diversity admissions at West Point. So I talked to young people of color across the country about um, the academy. And I think, you know, ultimately it's a challenge everywhere and a microcosm of our country and the culture of our country. Um, and so I essentially went, the time that I went to West Point, I, uh, there was one um, woman for every eight men. Okay. So it was essentially an all boys school. I went to an all boys school, <laughs> essentially. Um, and at the time that I graduated, there were 40 black women in the entire school. Um, a school of about four to 5,000 mm -hmm. cadets. So, you know, we are a very, very, uh, you know, small group uh, represented at the academy at the time that I was there. And so I think I absolutely felt, um, you know, I, uh, it was, you, it is a microcosm of what you experience in this country. 
Um, and so you will meet people who don't understand anything about uh, Black culture, about the marginalization of people, um, that don't understand anything about inequities that we're experiencing in this country. Um, however, I do think because the military um, really tries to inculcate around specific values mm -hmm. um, and really ground people around those values, that it is an opportunity where people are more open to seeing one another because they know like this person has to have my back. Mm -hmm. um, this person is going to go into um, the military with me and they are going to be someone who potentially could save my life, right? And who's gonna be looking out for me and supporting me. And so when you get in situations, I think of really high stress and you're put in really um, high stress situations together, people start to shed all the other things that actually don't matter, right? Like race is a social construct. It's not even a real, <laughs> a real thing. Um, and so people start to shed those because you're like, oh, actually, I thought I knew something about what it meant to be a Black person or Asian person or a woman, but actually I don't really know. And I'm not seeing where these differences lie because there I've seen men pass out in some of the <laughs> trainings that we've done and women excel and vice versa. And so all of those biases that you have really get tested, I think, at West Point. And I will say... That's one of the things that I felt were most redeeming about the academy, but absolutely you experienced, I experienced, um, you know, feeling marginalized as a woman and as a black woman or excluded in different environments because it is definitely a male dominated, dominated um, environment and experience. And so is the army. And I will say that I think whenever I moved from a unit to a unit or came to a new place, I think the difference between me and a man was that a man is kind of assumed to be competent and good until they prove themselves not to be. Whereas a woman, I knew I immediately had to prove myself in order to be considered equal, equally as competent or equally as physically fit um, in order to compete with my male counterparts. And I actually think that that's no different than corporate America or, you know, the general kind of um, experience in America. But that's definitely something I experienced while. Doesn't, that get, doesn't that get tiresome after a while, Vic? Yeah, it does. It absolutely does. And, um, and I think that's one of the things as a black woman that is really tiring and has impacted our health as black women as a population because we are constantly having to show up right I feel like you probably had the same speech that I had about being the best and having to be better than everybody else and having to show up and being on top of your game more than other people because people will have the expectation that you're not going to meet um, or that you're not going to meet their expectations when you come into a place because you're wrapped in, a, in brown skin, right? Um, and I think that that is really tiresome. And um, they talk about this concept of weathering in the health field um, of 
with black women that we are constantly experiencing microaggressions and um, you know these different social dynamics that chip away at our health because uh, because we are held to a different standard that we have to navigate on a daily basis. Um, and that's really why I think my focus has become one that is on health, health equity, on healing justice, um, making sure that we as black women have the capacity to fill ourselves first, to water our own gardens in order to be able to show up in the face of all of these and to just let it go, you know, also to be like, you know what, I don't have to meet these expectations. I can just be and that's perfectly fine as well. So what I'm hearing is, is let's be clear that it's this institutional racism is found through all facets of our, of our lives. And that we as African Americans and people of color are have to continually work at being mentally equipped. So how, mm -hmm. how did you though one of the things is that I found for me at least that to be equipped, I just can't be by myself. So how, what kind of support groups have you built, um, both at, when you were in the Army and as you move, have moved through your career? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, in the military, I think in the Army at West Point, it is critically important to lean on other people. You just have to. You know, in the army, I think one thing that is, again, great about the military environment is that the military really leans on camaraderie. You know, mm -hmm. it really invests in this sense of teamwork um, and team building in a way that when that outside the military, I think we don't focus on as much. You know, that this country is very individualistic, which I think is counter to much of our cultural heritage as Black people throughout the diaspora. Uh, and so you absolutely need community. And for me, you know, first, my family is a, is a, um, a grounding place that I can always go and always feel safe, but also surrounding myself with friends um, and people who are like-minded, who believe that we have to center ourselves and center our own healing, who are, um, who believe in liberation, right? Um, everybody don't want to get free. And I realize that. Um, so people who want to uh, invest in those things that help us to, to free ourselves or decolonize ourselves from some of the systems that we're experiencing, but also I've really been digging into different healing practices like mindfulness um, and, and practices that are really culturally rooted in, um, in my cultural heritage. So mindfulness practices, um, I'm in an herbalism apprenticeship with Sacred Vibes, um, shout out to Karen Rose. Um, and I think- yeah, so herbalism is really the study of plants as medicine and ancestor and ancestral medicine. And so I think a lot of that um, comes from our culture, culture as Black people, as Indigenous people. And much of that has been lost for many folks throughout, you know, the, the slavery, the slave trade, 
as we've been disconnected from some of those things, which has also disconnected us from our ecosystem, right? Like we don't lean on plants. We don't understand the impact of the environment or we have on the environment. We don't understand our relationship to plants as ancestors that have been here. And so this apprenticeship is really about how do we come back to those connections? How do we understand plants as support tools for us? Um, and when we understand that they're support tools, we understand and we value our relationship to them more than we do currently. But it also talks about our relationship to our ancestors, you know, people who are no longer here, but are part of our community, right, are there to support us and how spiritually do we lean on that as a tool as well. And for me, I thought, it's so important to think about my father, my biological father has passed away. Mm -hmm. um, and so to think about how can I build relationship and connection with someone who's no longer here, whom I didn't have the opportunity to build as much relationship and connection to in this life, how can I connect to someone who's so important to, you know, who I am as a person and my history and understanding that, um, how can I continue to invest in those relationships as a support system for my own healing has been critically important, I think, and very enlightening for me. Mm -hmm. How, because I want to fast forward a little bit, because you got your master's from Columbia, then you got a doctorate from Harvard University. Yes. And I'm hearing you like lessons. And so as you have moved forward now, uh, you're doing a variety of pieces of work in various places. I'd really like to get to some of the work that you're doing in the community to strengthen our community with all the bombastic things that continually every day to try to, to drive us crazy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I recently, with a, a few colleagues of mine, um, wrote a paper about healing-centered community development. Um, with the understanding that the community development field has been critical to much of the disinvestment that we see in Black and Brown communities, the trauma that we see in Black and Brown communities, um, and is really responsible for the ways in which we've spread um, our racist understandings of where people live and why they live there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we know that where you live can determine your, um, your, the longevity of your life, right? There, there have been studies recently that show your zip code can be more critical to your, uh, how long you live mm -hmm. than, your, than your DNA code. Right. Um, and that's because about 80% of health of our health is determined by our environment and our behaviors versus the healthcare system itself and how and how great it is. Um, and so as I became more and more interested in health and health equity, I kept coming back to the built environment and where people live. Mm -hmm. Do we have the opportunity and the access to the things that we need to thrive? Um, and if not, why not? Uh, and I think, so for me, understanding and now being in the community development field for several years, 
seeing how there's such a disconnect between practitioners who are practicing in the field of community development and community members, right? The people who are actually experiencing and living in the communities and experiencing these inequities. And so this healing-centered community development framework that I've, been, that I've helped to develop is really trying to center the healing that we need, but also the assets of community members in the community development process and practice. So really leaning on, lifting up the voices of folks who live in communities and shifting power from practitioners and institutions that we know have caused harm and perpetuated that to people and the prosperity of people. And so I've been doing a lot of workshops and trainings around this concept of healing-centered community development to really think about how we shift the process, how we do trust building, and how ultimately we build the relationships that we need that allow us to have better connection with ourselves, better connection with each other, and better connection to the land and the communities that we live in. Um, and so I'm really excited about the launching of that. And uh, we did a webinar a couple months ago to talk about that, but we've been doing a lot of trainings um, and just thinking about how do we actually do the type of self-reflection that's necessary for us to understand our positionality to race and racism as we enter into community and we work with other people uh, to shift the power dynamics that are super present and um, causing harm as we enter and do this work um, in community development. That's very powerful. How, how are you developing Black leadership in our communities? We have a lot of folks that don't see themselves as leaders because again, getting back to what we talked about early around expectations and that the Black community in many ways have been brainwashed that there's only 10 people in the whole United States that can do anything to aid and assist the rest of our community. And those people always get trotted out. My philosophy mm -hmm. is there are no dumb people in our community, only people not developed. So I really right. want to know how, how building that, how you are building a ground spell of community leadership through this healing philosophy. Yeah, I think the this this philosophy around the idea of shifting power is around like how are practitioners who are entering, right? If this is not your community, how are you taking steps back and allowing for other folks to take a step forward, right? How are you creating the conditions um, through whether it's uh, funding, um, whether it's like making the actual space, whether it is um, supporting resident leadership to ensure that this type of shift can actually happen where residents um, can step forward and the practitioners can step backward, right? We all have something I think important to, to contribute, but when you understand your positionality, right? To racism and to communities, it allows you to understand better what role you should actually be playing. And I think as more practitioners um, and institutions understand that their role is a support role <laughs> um, and that residents and community members um, are experts mm -hmm. and that they should be leader in leadership roles, we can better um, 
see that, right, that Black leadership come through, that there's actually space there as we think about um, uh, residents as leaders, right, that it will shift even the way that we talk about things, the way that we develop our, our funds or our proposals that we're putting out, the way that we're doing our processes when we do community engagement um, or participation. And so that's really, I think, where my work has been landing in thinking not only about how do we prepare practitioners to step back and step forward, uh, depending on if they are Black or from that community, um, and allowing people to feel really investing in um, their expertise as community members so that they can feel that they have all the tools they need to step forward. So, because this, this, this intrigues me, because white folks ain't about to give up no power. And, and the institutionalization of power, as you talked about, as well as the policies that drive that, are very ingrained. And so what are some of the tools and strategies that you've been utilizing with our community that will allow them to move forward to challenge some of these institutional practices that have continue through gentrification and et cetera, keep to uh, continue to aid us not to feel that we have the kind of strengths and skills necessary to do that challenge. Yeah, I, I hope that this framework um, allows for people to really feel that, right? And, mm -hmm. um, and this framework being backed by this community, this large community development nonprofit, we're really simultaneously training ourselves and internal people, right, to know their role and to do something different, and then to put funding behind it. Okay. To say, this is the way that we're going to practice. Mm -hmm. This is the way that we're going to do this thing, and our funding says that this is the way that we're going to do this thing. Mm -hmm. And so I agree with you. You know, a lot of folks aren't here to, to let go of power. Mm -hmm. We often think of power as a zero-sum game. If I, if, if I give you some, then I'm losing some. Mm -hmm. um, and so this framework is really trying to help people think about, it's not about winning it or losing it, but about shifting it to understand our roles better, but also that we're going to back this with money because money talks <laughs> and money makes things change and say that this is the way that we're gonna practice and we're gonna invest in trying on these practices, um, which really makes people, I think, get on board to trying new things. So how long is this process funded for? And the reason why I ask that is that historically in our community, when we have shown that we can do the things necessary, they defund us. Anytime we've done things successfully in our community, around sustaining ourselves, they've either defunded us or burned us out in terms of uh, historically, in terms of some of the communities that you've read about. So what kind of funding and how long is it and how are you leveraging that funding in other kind of ways? So, because I'm hearing a vision of at least 15 to 20 years, so. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the challenge, right? Like, that's the challenge with, with working within an institution um, and trying to get funding from 
philanthropic institutions, right? You're in this whole cycle around what they're willing to do or not to do. And so we've been really looking at, you know, these five-year funding cycles to hopefully, and, and we're shopping it around and pitching it, but really trying to get it within our own organization to be a foundational principle or framework that folks start to inculcate into their practices and processes so that it just becomes the way we do business and not something that has to be explicitly funded in order to try out. And so I think we're really trying to ingrain these principles into how we do this work so that it doesn't have to be, okay, now let's get five, you know, five more years of funding, let's get five more, but like, no, actually the way in which our organization does this work is we ground in these principles around healing-centered engagement that tells us to center blackness and indigeneity in the ways in which we do our work. So we ain't there yet, <laughs> but that's what we're trying to do. Um, and I think as we keep carrying this message out there to your point about black leadership, um, you know, a lot of the folks who have been interested in reaching out to us have been black and brown led organizations. And I think there's also a lot of power there around what we can do and lift up in our own communities and which ways we can continue to lead ourselves and, and get people to follow us, our leadership, versus you know, trying to make a case for why you should do your work differently. We're gonna continue on this vein, but can you give us, if people want listening to this and that they'll be doing this, where can they contact you? Where can they contact your organization if they have an interest to want to start to take what I call cracking the egg around institutional and, and systemic racism? Yeah, you can absolutely reach out to me. My email is so long, um, but <laughs> hopefully there'll be a place where you can also click on this after you see this, uh, this podcast, but you can definitely reach out to me, email me, um, at um, mvenablethomas at enterprisecommunity.org. Um, but you can also go to our site. Um, you can type in building to heal um, at enterprisecommunitypartners.com or .org. And you can find the paper that I'm referencing as well as the webinar that we did a few weeks ago um, that I've referenced as well. Uh, but I would love to talk to you, love to um, engage with you and see, and just just talk if you have questions or, you know, set up time to think about workshops or facilitations with you, with your organization, with your institution, whichever it might be. So this is, this is very, you've also done some work around healing justice and placemaking could you elaborate a little bit on what you've done? Because placemaking is is a term I only heard about three or four years ago, so I don't not sure if our audience is understands how placemaking can impact on racism and institutional systemic racism. Yeah, um, placemaking is like a little more technical kind of term within community development. I think it can be a little bit problematic because sometimes the sound of placemaking implies that a place is not yet made, which I think is often false. But um, creative placemaking 
traditionally is about the integration of arts and culture into the community development practice. And the reason that I think the integration of arts and culture is a beautiful vantage point into community development is because culture is who we are, right? Like culture is all of the traditions, the practices, um, you know, the, the food, the music, all the things that we have created in spite of the challenges that we've experienced in our communities. And sometimes because of, right, the many, the beautiful, um, the beautiful uniqueness and diversity of Black culture um, in many ways comes from our response for how we're coping with our situations and our experiences as Black people here in this country. And really, like, we are the culture bearers of America, right? Um, and so I think it's a beautiful vantage point because it's a wonderful way to connect with people, right? To say, you know what? I want to, um, I can't ever fully understand what your culture is if I'm not part of that culture, but I can enter with a level of cultural humility. One saying, I don't know all the things about you, but I wanna be open to understanding who you are and how that, um, how that changes or impacts the decisions that you make the way that you navigate the world, the way that you understand what you want in your community, the way that you make health decisions, right? How that is such an important part of how you really connect and understand people and build relationships. And so, and, and also how we lift up the cultural identity of a place. And so many times you were referring earlier to um, gentrification, many times when we think about what maintains the culture of a place, it's really lifting up who lives here, who belongs here, you know, whose community is this? Um, and it demonstrates that, that this place belongs to certain people and I think helps to prevent really the displacement of residents when they feel like it's a place that they belong and belongs for them. And so, we really, uh, I really enjoy focusing on how we think about arts and culture in community development because it really helps to continue to make places feel like they are for us um, and places that we belong and maintain the fabric, the cultural fabric of the community as well as lifting up the assets that, and tools that we have used to be resilient in these places, right? The fact that I exist, that you exist at all is a demonstration of the resilience of black people that we as descendants of slaves or people stolen from their land in Africa are here um, is a demonstration of our resilience. And so when we lift up our culture, when we show those things that make us beautiful um, and special and unique, it really helps us to feel like we belong and connect to one another, but it also show whose community this is. One thing I'm enjoying about our conversation is your passion. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, if, if you're going to be out here doing work with the community and with yourself, you've got to have a passion for whatever you're doing. At least that's my, my, my particular feeling. Um, where are there examples of this placemaking that, again, that you places that you worked in and had this placemaking take place? 
that's making take place. Okay. Yeah, I, <laughs> you've probably seen it all over, um, but particular places we've worked has been in Atlanta, um, on the Southwest side. We've worked in Chicago with Elevated Chicago, who has many beautiful projects across the community from, um, you know, planting flowers and trees that represent like the neighborhood fabric to murals and community art pop-ups um, to I've worked with the American Indian Community Housing Organization in Duluth, Minnesota, where they not only built, built or erected the first mural of an indigenous person painted by an indigenous person ever, um, but also where they created a community garden on top, a rooftop garden for sustainable and medicinal and traditional herbs so that people in their community could really come and find the herbs that they needed in order for medicine for themselves. Mm -hmm. But it's also a resilience hub. So it has solar panels, you know, they have very much cold inclement weather there. Um, so a place where people in the community can come when they have power outages or they need support um, from any type of climate challenges. So projects like that have been really beautiful. Also Chinatown Community Development Corporation in San Francisco. Um, I've worked with communities in Memphis uh, as well as um, LA and the Bay. So a lot of places um, and probably if you walk around your community, you'll really see some beautiful um, place making, place keeping, whether it's murals and public art um, or, you know, gardens and community gardens or places where people just really put a stake in the ground about who lives here and, um, and how they want to lift up their cultural identity. Yeah. So let's be clear, you, you, you doing placemaking and, and healing, all of these are strategies that I'm hearing and tools that you've developed that are really impacting our community both psychologically deal with many of the traumas but also bringing value in terms of people's self-worth so one of the things that i'm concerned about as we move in our work is how are we linking in our learnings together so that what you're doing is not seen as isolated kinds of pieces with no connection yeah i think that that's a great a great question and one of the things that we're interested in doing and that we're working on now is a national network of practitioners mm -hmm. so one of the things that we did in the project that actually supported um the chicago atlanta um aco uh chinatown cdc and coalfield development corporation mm -hmm. was that we brought together a cohort, a cohort of folks uh, that were doing this work to learn from each other. We did a bunch of retreats together to really learn and practice. Um, that, was a, 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 that was a deep part of, of our practice that got a little side railed in COVID, um, but we're hoping to be able to bring that back soon. Um, but now we're really thinking about how do we pull together a national network where people can continually connect and we saw from that cohort that people continued to do projects together, which was awesome in Atlanta and Chicago. Um, but how do we continue to keep that 
national network as an offering for folks to con continue to connect, con continue to check in um, and be able to, like you're saying, really connect at a systemic level to be able to have more impact than just even in their own communities, but how then do the lessons that we learn to the things that we wanna create, the understandings that we're gleaning really help to impact us all. And so um, right now I'm working with a project called Spark, Strong, Prosperous and Resilient Communities Challenge. And say, that's say that again. Strong, Prosperous and Resilient Communities Challenge. Uh -huh. um, and that's with Memphis, um, Atlanta, Chicago, LA, the Bay, and Denver projects in all of these places. And we're really, I'm really trying to craft a national network of like their arts and culture folks to be able to work together, to learn from one another and to do a national project. And actually I think our national project is going to be around storytelling. How do we tell the stories of our community from community members? Um, but I'm also interested in these retreats and how are retreats opportunities for us to retreats or immersions opportunities for us to disconnect from what's going on in our day-to-day -day lives and really have the opportunity to not only restore but to connect with people and take that back with us to continually have those lessons um, and bridge like you're saying uh, across communities so we'll see um, how we how this work continues to to grow yeah, because one of the things that, as you know, that's going to be important for us to continue to do is to build, we're in psychological warfare against us, as, as I see it, at least. Mm -hmm. And how do we build up our community uh, in such a way as you talked about healing, to be able to manage the day-by-day -day trauma that our community yeah. is in. So I'd like for you to speak a little bit about how you're, with, through your work, investing in trauma and managing the trauma that our kids and adults are facing on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, I think first, that's why this approach around healing-centered community development is so important. Um, you know, trauma-informed, really is to have a trauma-informed practice I think is really important because it addresses the fact that trauma exists and helps us to understand based on people's trauma how can I care for you better mm -hmm. but I think what a healing-centered approach does that shifts us even further um, as coined by Sean, uh, Dr. Sean Jimwright is that it not just focuses on our trauma Right, Because sometimes when we just focus on the trauma, we get stuck in that being all that who we, that's all that we are, right? right. We can spiral into focusing only on the trauma and then addressing the symptoms of that trauma. But when we focus on healing, right. it really shifts to our assets, right? What are those things that we've already got and we've already created within us that have helped us to keep going? Um, and when we focus on the assets, right, that's really how it helps to unlock our imagination and think more radically 
towards liberation because we got to think radically and creative to get to something that we haven't ever experienced. Um, and so I think, you know, this idea um, and within our framework around healing centered community development, it asks us a few questions around how we're doing our work. Like what, what do we protect? Mm -hmm. And we say holistic well-being as a, as a universal right, it is a right for me to, to be well and get well. Mm -hmm. What do we value? Cultural assets and are the foundation of our resilience, knowing that our assets have allowed us to be here and that we all have them. Mm -hmm. um, how do we do our work? We prioritize process um, and trust building and we center blackness and indigeneity and those most marginalized and impacted in how we work. How do we measure our work? We're not talking about the number of buildings built or the number of residents housed, but we're talking about better relationships with ourselves, each other and the land, right? How then is that, when that's the focus, how does that shift our approaches? And then our end goal being healing and liberation. And so our strategies within that framework um, are asking us to reflect, to be self-aware and to acknowledge injustice. They're asking us to get involved, to access, assess and honor our strengths. They're asking us to restore, which I think is critical to what you're talking about around healing. It's asking us to create spaces for healing and to take up space for healing, right? Um, it's asking us to invest in building community power and shifting that shifting of power that I was talking about. And then it asks us to reimagine, to get creative and to advance that liberation. And so to allow space for creativity as I was talking about before that I think is so important. And so um, I think to your point around the psychological piece, right? Just shifting our attention towards, um, uh, there's an amazing book by Adrian Marie Brown called Emergent Strategy that I love. I'm reading it right and now. One, yes, I love that book. And one of the principles she has um, talks about uh, what we pay attention to grows. Uh, and so if we pay attention to the trauma, then that's what we're going to be stuck in. But if we pay attention to the healing and the liberation and what we need to do that, then it not only shifts our, um, the, our allowing ourselves to do that restoration, to take that time, to take that space, right, to value that as, as critical to our healing, but it also shifts uh, the ways in which we believe and support and lift and dig into our assets in order for us to get to the healing and the liberation. So, um, so yeah, I think that's kind of how we're trying to really shift the way we think about things so that we can be different instead of just doing different. Yeah. One of the major strategies that I'm hearing from you is that language shapes behavior. So we're Absolutely. reshaping the language. Absolutely. Absolutely. All the language um, that I hear, like uh, vulnerable communities and other terms, socially disadvantaged, marginalized, all is language that, that have become code words. Rather than just say black and brown folks, folks That's who right. all this properly to not speak to the essence of what the issues are. 
And so it gets watered down. It's like taking black coffee, as brothers used to say, and put white milk in it, and it, it, it dilutes it. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I totally, I totally agree with you. And when we do that too, right, it puts, it doesn't put any ownership mm. on the perpetuators mm. or the perpetrators, right, of those things, right? Like mm -hmm. you're marginalized. Mm -hmm. Okay, why am I marginalized? Mm -hmm. You're vulnerable. It, it acts as if we're in a vacuum that we're vulnerable, that we just happen to be vulnerable. And then you can make assumptions about why that is, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's because your biology or your DNA or the bad choices that you've made. When in actuality, right, I am marginalized because you have marginalized me. Right, yeah. I am vulnerable because you have made me, you have put me and disinvested in my community and made me vulnerable, right? Or you put me in the worst, the highest risk um, area in my community and built highways over it and put bus stations next to it. And right, like, so I also think to your point, which is great and one that we need to be reminded of that when we use the, that type of language, we also, move away from who can take ownership and accountability. And so then nobody does, right? Mm -hmm. Then the ownership and accountability falls on the folks who are marginalized and vulnerable and all the things. Yeah. And then we're back into the, the bootstrap theory with no That's straps. Right. <laughs> with no strap. Do we got boots? I don't know. <laughs> so, so tell me, because you got a lot more time in a, to be here on the planet and to maintain your your mental sanity. <laughs> what, is, what is your vision five, say five to 10 years out on where you'd like to see our community? Where I would like to see our community. I would like to see our community thriving. I would like to see... Um, you know, black folks stepping into the businesses that they want to start, taking the time and the space that they need for their own personal care um, and healing, um, being more connected with the land and each other and themselves. I want to see us making more music and more beauty and more art and feeling proud of who we are and our contributions to this place that we are, but also, you know, making more space for us to be together as community um, and connecting, I think, too, with our indigenous brothers and sisters who um, are so much a part of our experience here um, and really connected to, I think, our experience here in ways that we, um, we don't get to see as often. But yeah, that is, I would love to see us connecting back with our lands, our traditions, um, knowing deeply who we are mm -hmm. and, um, and being able to leverage all the tools in our toolbox and toolkit that our ancestors and this place have given to us to not just survive, but to thrive. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that 
at least in my life, that I've learned to achieve my vision is to speak like it's already done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. So uh, we will talk offline about about how that's <laughs> worked. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah it, it's and one of the things that you've talked about all the way is the collaborative nature of it. That uh, we can't do this as as just an individual. We may have some thoughts, but we got to build some partnerships, not just with other black people, but also with the brown people and then people of color who uh, are finding more and more that this country is not what they thought it was. Yeah, I mean... They getting woke up too. Right, right. Everybody's waking up. <laughs> the alarm clock is going off. Hey. We, we can't press snooze anymore. No, 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 no. no, no. But so, I think it's also critically important, you know, when we talk about centering Blackness and indigeneity to recognize that, right, much of this culture, this country is built on and the racism that we experience is built on anti-Black racism and anti-Indigenous racism, right? We literally, they literally came here and murdered the people of this country, right? And, 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 um, and created the narrative from the psychological standpoint, standpoint that they didn't deserve to have this land um, or to be in this place or even to share, right? To share this land with, with folks um, that has allowed people to create this hierarchy of, and then brought us here and said, these people aren't, aren't even human beings. Um, so we, we sh- we're, it's okay for us to treat them like this and it's okay for us to murder people and take their land um, and that's really foundational mm-hmm. to all of the other racism that we see. And so I think it's really important to understand that anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism is very much real and the ways in which even people of color perpetuate that and how do we all get on a, the same page around none of us benefiting from racism, really, right? It is actually a guise to make us think that we're getting a better opportunity or a better lot in life because we're here or here in the hierarchy. And so I think it's really important that we can have that type of dialogue um, amongst all of the people of color in this country and white people. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, well, they, they talk about manifest destiny and that's- Ooh, that's- Lord. <laughs> Oh, help us, help us, Lord, help us. Right. Please. <laughs> so, Megan Venable Thomas. Yes, sir. It has been very, very exciting to talk with you and to learn from you. Uh, I'm hearing many, many strategies that you talked about, tools, everything for the National Network of Practitioners cohort training, uh, bringing arts and culture and storytelling into our community because we have a a history of the griots passing down. And our history for black folks has basically been an oral history in most instances anyway. So one of the things that I would ask uh, from your generation is that you spend more time with the elders getting the history from them 
and starting to document that history. Because a lot of us are, are, have moved on, especially even in the last year or so. Uh, we still have a lot with you to offer. And so I, I encourage uh, the generations behind me not to uh, build a dichotomy between us, but encourage more of a sharing of the stories of our life in our learnings, and as you're doing things, looking at how you can incorporate that so that you don't have to go down some of the paths that we went down that historically have not been to the benefit of our community. Absolutely. I, that is such a beautiful point, and I've been thinking about it so much since the pandemic. We've I've been having weekly calls with my grandparents, you know, over Christmas break. We I've just been documenting the recipes and the ways you do all the things because you know, grandma, you can't you can't make the sweet potato. My sweet potato pie still ain't like hers, but maybe one day. But um, <laughs> I think that that is so critically important because so much you have created the pathway for us to even be here and to be talking about these concepts. Um, but you've also experienced so much of what we've already done, right? So much of what we've already experienced. Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, you know, all of these folks were talking about um, these many things that we're talking about today in different ways. And so it is not anything new um, uh, nothing's new under the sun, as my grand, as my grandma says. Um, and I think it's so important to know where we're from in order to know where we're going. And so I'm really excited about a project that I'm working on now for immersions for Black and Indigenous people of color, um, restorative immersion that is intergenerational, that's connecting people from across ages to be able to come together and learn healing-centered practices that are really culturally rooted um, in who we are and where we come from. So really excited to see that on the horizon as well. Um, yeah. and tell me, tell me more about that. What, what's, what stage is it in? This, is um, it, so it's still in the planning stage. I'm hoping to launch it. It is, it is supposed to launch in 2022 um, in the spring of 2022. Uh, but I'm doing it in conjunction with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation um, Cultural Health Leaders Fellowship. Um, and I'm right now calling it Rooted, Rooted Restoration. Um, we'll see the name might change. Mm -hmm. But it is a four-day, um, three-night immersion for you to come and just be. Come and be, be with other Black, Indigenous um, women and to learn from each other, to take time to learn about different types of healing practices that we will share in together. And so another component of this um, immersion is that I will be funding people, it is fully funded. So mm. one thing is um, that we're not asking, we're not paying for our healing, that it is, it is a reparative model to recognize that other people should be investing in our healing. Um, but also that it will fund um, people who want to create and sh create workshops for the immersion, I will pay you to come up with your workshop. You'll also get a coach that you can work with to develop that workshop around one of the healing-centered tools that you use that comes from who you are. Again, recognizing that all the tools 
and assets that we need to be resilient and to thrive are within us. How do we just pull them out? How do we cultivate them? How do we call them forward? And how do we share them with one another? So I'm really excited about, um, about this immersion. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be fun. It's going to be all the things that we need right now. Um, and this is just going to be the first one. And I'm hoping to continue to do them. I've already got funding for the second one. Um, and ultimately, my dream in five years for myself is to have an actual center where this can land, where these, um, where these retreats can, can happen. So as opposed to looking for, you know, um, resorts where I can have these, I would have a place where these can come, where people can come, they can stay for two days, three days, they can do a whole retreat, um, they can stay for a while, but also where women can come and grow their enterprises. If you have a enterprise around healing centered work, whether it's in, you know, uh, food sovereignty or uh, medicinal learning or, you know, body work, yoga, meditation, Reiki, whatever it is um, that you can also have a place where you can try that on and you're and share with other folks. So um, and that might be a family uh, business. So working with, with my family too, to, to talk about this and to grow this, very excited about where that can go. I'm smiling because I don't know whether I've ever mentioned to you, I have that facility. Oh, well, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me give my own plug. I want you to, I want you to check out spiritsanctuary.com. SpiritSanctuary.com. Yeah, it's a hundred acre conference center in West Virginia on a mountain. Beautiful. And it's black mm -hmm. owned. We own it. SpiritSanctuary.com. Okay, well, we definitely need to talk more because you know I've been looking for the black um black owned and indigenous owned resorts. And unfortunately, they're limited. You know, we we um and so that's also another need that I'd love to fill. And the more that we have, the better, you know, the more of these that are out there, the better. So, um, yes, I'm excited to talk to you more about yeah. that. We'll talk on Monday morning. <laughs> Absolutely. But I, I want to thank you so much, Megan, um, for spending this afternoon with me and to share all of these proactive things that you are doing and your group is doing to really challenge institutional systemic racism. You have been a highlight of our Let's Be Clear. The article that you were mentioning earlier about healing communities, where can people find that article? Yes, so you can find Building to Heal, a framework for holistic community development at enterprisecommunity.org just type the name in um, and it will show up. You can also type in the webinar, the name and the we and webinar, and the webinar that we did a few weeks ago will come up as well. So please check it out. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to see you and to be in your presence. One day, hopefully in real life, IRL, um, but um, for now I'll take what I can get. And I'm just so grateful for you even thinking of me and wanting me to be on. Um, it's been really fun.